0: Good morning. Good morning. Is this on? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Someone's awake. Outstanding. Uh, glad you are all here this morning. Uh, we have a, a special Bible class a speaker that's going to be with us. Uh, many of us heard him yesterday. Uh, he is Dean Miller, uh, and as I look at the, uh, the the outline, his little CV here, the first thing it says on here, he's a 1976 graduate of freed Hartman University or college back then, and that's really all I think we need to know to make him qualified to, to make come him to speak. Old. Well, and there's that as well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but a little bit more information about him as well. He's been preaching for uh, over 40 years. Uh, he is. Uh, From Ohio, but let's listen to him anyway. Okay. Uh, For a while now, he's been working full time with the Widowhood Workshop Ministry, which is why he's here this weekend. Uh, And uh, it's a wonderful work. Uh, He currently lives in. I have a feeling uh, in Georgia they pronounce it Villa Rica. Villa Rica. Rica. You pronounce it like
1: Miss Google does.
0: Now here in Texas here in Texas it would be Vierica, uh, but they've got their own way of saying it in Georgia, and I don't want to mess with the way they say it in Georgia. so we're just going to leave that as is. Uh, Dean himself, he is a widower. His wife, Ruth Ann, uh, they met when they were 15 years old. They married when they were 19 years old. Uh, They were married for 41 years and she passed away in 2013. And since that time as a widower, um, he's been working with the widowhood workshop ministries I mentioned before. He also has three daughters. Uh, He has five grandchildren and we are so thankful uh, that he is with us today. Uh, before we begin class, uh, let's uh, have a word of prayer and then uh, we'll turn it over to Dean. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you so much for this opportunity, uh, this blessing uh, to be here this morning. Thank you for the health that you have blessed us with that we could be here. Uh, thank you for the time we could spend together Father, we pray that you would please soften our hearts, that we would be open and receptive, that we would be that good soil that receives your word, and that it can change us and grow and produce fruit in our lives. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the hope of heaven we have because of him. Help us, dear God, to be more like your son, Jesus, every day. We ask this prayer in the name of your son, Jesus, our Savior, and our friend. Amen. Amen. Dean.
1: I want some of you to uh, go old school with me. It appears from how some of you look, you're not going to have a problem going old school. Uh, you've been there and done that or been there and uh, still doing that. I want to ask you to get your songbook out and I uh, want you to reach for a songbook and I would like for you to turn to uh, the number 47. The reason why I want you to do that is I want a dear friend of mine, Cheryl Wayne Lahon, to lead us in that doxology because it just really fits perfectly with what we're going to be studying about in our Bible class this morning. Cheryl Wayne uh, is from Carthage, Missouri, southwest Missouri, and he meets me a lot of different places where We are able to travel uh, when he is able to be there. And he is a really, really big help and a great song leader. So we want to sing this song. But before we do that, I want to share with you a passage of scripture to help you appreciate what we're about to do. Because we're fixing to praise the Lord. I was so indebted to the West Virginia School of Preaching when for their lectureship, This past October, they assigned me Psalm 95. I want to read to you a section of Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms, for the Lord is the great God and the great King above all God's. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Our God is an awesome God. Our God's greatness and majesty and glory is beyond our full comprehension but with what little we may have in regard to comprehension about his character, all that he's done and all that he is doing, we need to make sure that sincerely from the depth of our soul, we live a life that praises the Lord. And we're gonna praise the Lord in song, this short song, this doxology, number 47.
2: Praise God from whom
1: all appropriate for the church after singing that song, say amen. Now this praise the Lord phrase, when is it that we hear it or when is it that we see it? I want to ask you to think out loud together with me and for the sake of the recording, anything you say can and will be paraphrased by me so it's caught. By the sound. I want you to tell me about some life experiences where we might hear somebody say, praise the Lord, or where you might find some sort of, a, of an email sent to you or you might read something on Facebook where some kind of life experience is reported and then they say, praise the Lord. Name me a few specific life circumstances where that phrase would pop up. When, when somebody is baptized. Perfect time When that person comes up out of that watery grave, when they had been on the broad road that leads to destruction, and with no merit whatsoever, they humbly embrace the fact that they are lost. And with desperation, they seek the only result that can be good for them eternally, Jesus. And they're baptized into Christ, what a perfect time for the whole church when that person is coming up out of that watery grave to say all together, praise the Lord. It's by His grace that that person's forgiven. Okay, so at a baptism, when else? Okay, when you have a long-term illness, let's say you have cancer. And you go through treatments that cause you to experience a lot of terrible symptoms. You have headaches, you're exhausted, you lose your hair, you puke your guts out. Let's be blunt. A terrible, terrible struggle. And after all that you've experienced, you hear a sweet word from the medical doctor. You're in remission. Praise the Lord. There is no miraculous healing today. Oh, there was in Bible times. We read about a bunch of them in the Bible. There are no miraculous healings now, but all healing now is divine. God does not need a miracle to heal us. It's because of God we have an awesome medical profession. Boy, thank the Lord for MD Anderson, right? And all the other great hospitals we have at our access. And when God blesses us through His providence with a recuperation or a remission, we need to praise the Lord. I remember going to my nurse practitioner, who was a member of the church, uh, the Estes Church in Chester County, Tennessee. And one day I decided to address him as soon as he walked in the room. I wasn't going to let him address me first. He walked in the door and I said, Brent, when do people appreciate their health? What do you think he said? Just like that, when they lose it. Boy, if we've lost our health and we get it back, we'll sure look at our health in a lot of a different way with deeper gratitude. Loss has a way of doing that sometimes. Sometimes it's because of loss we find ourselves Developing much greater and more sincere gratitude. So a baptism, a a physical recuperation. Give me another one. A childbirth. God gives us the ability to procreate. Isn't that an awesome thing? An amazing thing? That we can procreate and when that baby comes and that baby is healthy and safely born into this world. What an awesome thing. And I can't help but wonder in those birthing units, if any of the medical people have ever heard Somebody in that room say when that baby is born, praise the Lord. I remember when my best friend died about 12 or 13 years ago, we had worked together at camp for about 30 years, dearly loved and appreciated that man. He had an awful heart attack. He had a, a surgery, a bypass surgery that went bad and he ended up dying. And when I was with the family and that plug was pulled, as soon as that plug was pulled, I knew what I wanted to do. I started singing amazing grace, how sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. His family joined in. We wanted to praise the Lord for the salvation that he had given that man, preacher of the gospel, for many years. Who no longer was gonna to have to struggle in this life. You know, sometimes even in death, when we lose a loved one, it's a really good time to praise the Lord. Let me tell you about Katie. I asked this question in Grossback, Texas, Limestone County, and a much smaller auditorium. The back left hand row, there was a young lady and Her two daughters, I never met them previous to Bible class. They must have come in late. I didn't even see them until this little 11-year-old girl sitting there with her 14-year-old sister and I would guess her early 40-something mother. The 11-year-old girl, Katie, raised her hand. I'd never had that happen in an adult Bible class. So I wasn't about to ignore her. So I pointed to her, and I didn't know her name. I just pointed to her, and I said, Okay, tell me something that would really cause you to want to say, Praise the Lord. Katie said, When somebody gets married. Katie doesn't have a father in this world now. Her dad, Brian, I found out after Bible class, he had died. little over a year previous to Katie saying that. Katie had watched her mother struggle with life after the loss of her beloved husband. And she saw her sister, her 14 year old sister, struggle with the loss of the father that she loved. I'd never thought about That response to the question I ask you. But an 11-year-old girl brought that to my attention. God did a marvelous thing, and His wisdom is displayed very clearly with the marriage that He blesses us the opportunity to experience. It's a wonderful blessing. I call it an unparalleled blessing. If you're presently married, I hope you appreciate what you're enjoying. Some of us had that but lost it. I hope you appreciate what you have. Wouldn't it be a neat thing at a wedding when you had two people up here and they've committed themselves to one another and they want to live together until death do us part how appropriate it would be when the officiant turns them around and says, I present to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. whatever. And then the whole bunch of folks gathered there. They just say, praise the Lord, because marriage is a good reason to praise the Lord. Now, it's pretty easy to respond with a praise the Lord kind of sentiment or expression orally. In words, when it's something good. But how inclined are we, and how likely are we, when our life tanks to praise the Lord? And could there possibly be a time in our life experience when that life experience might be so awful that because we're a mere mortal human being and we're struggling with the circumstance of our awful life at that point in time, maybe we don't even want to praise the Lord. Would anybody here be willing to admit the fact that that might be possible? Turn to Acts chapter 16, please. And I would like for us to look at a passage. It's a very well-known passage to you. And in Acts chapter 16, we're reading about the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And in verse 11 of Acts chapter 16, the story starts about Lydia's conversion and the conversion of her whole family. And boy, what a great time when you have not only one person, but you have a whole family that are converted to the Lord. And boy, what a great time to praise the Lord. And I can't help but wonder if that's what Lydia was wanting whenever it says in verse 15, she said, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. They celebrated. It was a praise the Lord moment. Lydia and her family had become Christians. Well, then chapter 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you. I love reading this. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. The New American Standard Version says at that very moment. Praise the Lord. Jesus had already displayed in his life in the gospel records many, many times when he had sovereignty over the physical realm. He could stop a storm. He could create lightning. I mean, he could heal people. And here we have proof of God's power in the spirit world. By the power of God given to Paul, he's able to exercise this demon from this girl who's being abused by these men, using this kid, this girl, for their personal profit. What an ugly spirit that had to have prompted those men. So verse 19, in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 2, Paul reported That they were spitefully treated in Philippi. Here you go. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying And singing hymns to God. Some Greek authorities suggest that what they were actually doing was singing their prayers. It could be translated that way. We do the same thing. I need thee, oh I need thee, every hour I need thee. We're singing a prayer. Purer in heart, oh God, help me to be. We're singing a prayer. Now, a lot of times, if you're a mere mortal human being like I am, what happens is what you've read frequently becomes really something that you often are tempted to observe the Passover with. I've I've read that a dozen times. I've read that a hundred times. And old brother Charles Hodge, I think, had a great idea when he would uh, often say, when he was preaching, familiar scriptures ought to be read more carefully. Amen. Rest in peace, brother. You hit the nail on the head. Familiar scriptures ought to be read more clearly. So I'm going to take you back to English class, which some of you probably slept through. And I'm going to ask you to start at verse 19 in the text. And I'm going to ask you to look for every verb. Remember, nouns, verbs, adverbs, adjectives. Okay, are we on the same page here at least? Okay, we're going to look for verbs. Look for any verb that has to do with what Paul and Silas experienced. Okay, in verse 19, give me a verb. Somebody give me a verb in verse 19. Okay, the masters saw. What they saw was they were getting ripped off. And when you get ripped off and you have an ugly heart to start with, which was obvious by their use of this girl for their personal profit, they saw and what they saw ticked them off. Okay, how about another verb in verse 19? Seized. Seized. How about another one? Drag. Okay, when you're seized and dragged, what have you lost? Okay, you've lost your freedom. You know, when, when our kids are little, we're bigger, faster, and stronger. That doesn't last for too many years, but you know, we're bigger, faster, and stronger, and if they don't want to do something and they run off, what can you do? You can run faster than them, you can seize them and you can drag them. They might not want to go to the bathtub. But you can make them go to the bathtub because you can cause them to lose their control. Now, these are adult men. These are not kids. These are adult men. And they are being seized and dragged because of what the masters of that girl saw. Drop down to verse 22 for the sake of time. How about another verb or verbal phrase that references something they experienced? What about the crowd? What does it say about the crowd? Attacking. Okay, they rose up. Why why did why did this multitude or this crowd rise up? Have you seen some of these reports sometimes where something's going on that's not right and somebody with some moral fiber about them? And a backbone, when they see something going on that's not right, they step into that space and they stop it because it's not right. Maybe there's a carjacking that's in progress, or maybe somebody is trying to steal some woman's purse. And a good person with moral character and courage jumps into that situation and they rise up and they stop what should never be happening. Is that what the crowd's doing here? They, they rise up. Is that what they're doing? Why are they rising up? Because they have courage in a crowd. Okay. What are they rising up to do? Are they rising up to stop something? How do you know they're not rising up to stop something? There's a word there that tells you. Why do they rise up? To attack. To attack. They're against... They're rising up against Paul and Silas, not for them, not to stop this injustice. Paul and Silas do not deserve what they're experiencing. Does that sound familiar? People in our broken world experiencing things they don't deserve. Welcome to our world. It happens. You know, life is not just unfair sometimes. It's way worse than that. Sometimes life bites. It bites so hard that it takes a chunk of your heart out. And you have a pain within you that feels as if it is unbearable. And if it doesn't stop, you're going to die. My suspicion is, in a room this big with this many people, there are folks sitting here. who have been severely burdened in their life by something that's happened. And they were feeling that burden so strongly that maybe they even asked the Lord, take me too. Life can be really not just unfair. It can be cruel and brutal. We live in a broken world. Not everything that happens in this world is God's will, but in everything that happens, God has a will. I'm talking about His desire. God does not desire domestic violence. God does not desire marital mates being sexually unfaithful to their marital mates. It's not God's will that a lot of things happen in this world, not His desire. But in everything that happens, God has a desire God's desire is always that He be glorified and that we be a servant to others. So you watch Paul and Silas. Because that's the very purpose that they assign to what they experience. So they're seized and dragged by a multitude. By, what? by the way, how big is a multitude or a crowd? Have you ever wondered about that reading this story? Wonder how many? You think it's two or three? Two or three... Ain't no crowd. Now, you got to remember, again, these are adult males in human bodies just like I'm in and you're in. If we could have taken their blood pressure, what do you think it would have been? Very high. If we could have determined their heart rate, how fast do you think their heart was beating? See, we have a tendency, it's very easy for us to read these things where we're reading about Bible characters, and we think because they're great people of faith, great men or women of faith, we don't think of them as normal like us. Just because you have great faith, and just because you've been a child of God for years, and just because you have a lot of life experience, you are still human. You know, to me, the hardest thing about being a Christian is I still have to be a human. That's what makes being a Christian so hard. Because we're human. And we struggle because we're mere mortal human beings. So if you take a look at verse 22, there's another verb that references what they experienced. After the crowd rising up against them, what does it say next? Tore, what was torn? Their clothes. And then look at the end of verse 22. What else happens? Give me another verb. Beaten. Beaten with what? With rods. Did you ever get a whooping? I see some of you smiling. It wasn't fun back then, was it? Well, what did you get a whooping with? let's make this personal for a minute. What did you get a whooping with? Somebody mentioned something. I'll tell you one I got a whooping with. A switch. A switch. Okay. Give me another one. Uh, A hairbrush. (laughs) Uh, That is pitiful parenting. (laughs) Only in Texas. Cheryl Wayne and I, because he's from Missouri and I'm originally from Ohio. I have an address in Georgia, but, uh, a lot of times we'll, we'll hear something in Texas and, and we'll look at each other and one of us will say, only in Texas. So a hairbrush whooping, only in Texas. Thank you, Cheryl. Oh boy. Give me another one. A belt. a belt, a razor strap. Raise your hand, that razor strap person. Oh yeah, okay. That was my last one. Hmm, Boy, now for you younger folks, you'll have to Google that one. Razor strap, you'll probably see it hanging down by a barber chair, a very effective tool to accomplish its purpose. Um, I had one person, I don't remember what state this was in, I had one person say, uh, fly swatter. Well, there's another example of pitiful parenting, uh, fly swatter. Now, what, now look at this again. They got a whooping, what did they get a whooping with? Look at the text, rods. Now, they're not robots. They're not bionic men. These are human beings. So if they're beaten with rods, what effect is that going to have on them physically? What's it going to cause them to experience? Give me something that it's going to cause them to experience. Bruising. Pain. What? Pain. 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 Bruising. Bruising. Maybe even some laceration and bleeding. Now, how much were they whooped? What does the text say? See, don't observe the Passover. Familiar scriptures ought to be read more carefully. How many times did they get beaten? Many, stripes. Many, many stripes. How many is many? Now, we might be inclined to think about the number of 40 or 39 for some reason, But who's doing this? These are the Romans, not the Jews. So how many is many? It's hard telling. It's way too many is what it is. So imagine what they're feeling physically. Again, think about their blood pressure. Think about their heart rate. Think about the degree of pain that they're experiencing. Think about what they are going through here. And then it says, in verse 23, they were thrown or cast. So where were they thrown or cast? Okay, in prison. What kind of a prison was it according to the end of verse 23? In verse 24, an inner prison for the purpose of being kept securely. In our country, in our penal institution, we have maximum security prisons distinctive from others who have a lesser degree of security. This is a maximum security situation. In verse 24, there's another verb that references what they experienced. What's the verb? The word fastened is there. What was fastened? Their feet. In what? You get my point? Are you beginning to see... What a horrific experience this is. you got to love it. Their reaction, you've got to be inspired. When you then read in verse 25, but Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And imagine the impact... On the prisoners when it said, and the prisoners were listening to them. What if we were experiencing some awful thing in our life and there were people who were not Christians hearing us praise the Lord or seeing us in our life praise the Lord. Imagine the impact that it could have on people of the world. Who would see us suffer tremendously, and yet in the midst of all of that suffering, we in some way choose to react by praising the Lord. What kind of an impact do you think that'd have on them? You think that'd cause them to have some interest in knowing the Jesus that made a difference in their lives? Brother Ken Durham was speaking at Harding University in 1989. At the lectureship that year, he was assigned Acts chapter 16 to speak about and write about. And then he reads you a quote out of the Harding University lectureship book in 1989 written by Ken Durham in regard to Paul and Silas. Maybe they are trembling in their stocks, scared, hurt, Exhausted. And all they know to do in a moment like this is to affirm the only truth they can. God. This is faith. Faith at its toughest. Faith at its purest. After all, the most honest, unvarnished songs of praise are probably not sung in air-conditioned religious buildings. But sung in dark places through trembling lips. At midnight. You know when my prayer life changed? It was after a few years of caregiving. And I got to where I was at my wits end. And I was struggling personally tremendously. I loved my wife. And I was serving her because I loved my wife that didn't change the fact I was a more than just a Christian I had to be a mere mortal human being too it was a hard time there were times that I would leave her in that hospital bed at home and I'd go upstairs to the bathroom and with tears streaming down my cheeks I would express a three-word prayer, because it's all I could get out. I was so emotional. All I could say was, help me, Lord. When life is really hard, sometimes we can find ourselves sensing a desperation for God like we never have before. If that were to happen, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? See, perspective matters, and how we react matters. I was sure by now, God, you would have reached down and wiped our tears away, stepped in and saved the day, and once again, I say amen, and it's still raining. But as the thunder rolls, I barely hear your whisper through the rain. I am with you. And as your mercy falls, I'll raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. I'll praise you in this storm. I'll lift my hands for you are who you are, no matter where I am. And every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You never left my side. And though my heart is torn, I will praise you in This storm. I remember when I stumbled in the wind. You heard my cry, you raised me up again, but my strength is almost gone. How can I carry on if I can't find you? The lyrics of a song sung by a group called Casting Crowns. It can be a real struggle when life is hard and life bites to react how we should. I'm gonna ask the fellows in the sound booth to play a song. I don't know if you've heard this song before or not, but we're going to have them play this song and I'm gonna ask you to not be caught up in the melody because it's a beautiful melody. I want you to listen real carefully to the lyrics and I wanna ask you about what it is that this song is telling us. I never heard this song before until my wife died and one of my daughters said, we ought to play this song at Mom's funeral. Listen to the words, please, real careful. Blessed
2: be your name in a land that is plentiful, where streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when bound in the desert place. Name. Every blessing you pour out.
1: song. What? Praise the Lord at all times. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when the sun shining down on me and the world's all that it should be. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be your name. And then this point, my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Let me confess to you a time when I didn't want to do that. It wasn't during the caregiving period. It wasn't after my wife died. I was in my 30s. There was something about that particular time in my life I was extremely vulnerable. There was a young lady at church in the Hartville, Ohio, church where I spent 33 wonderful years. A young lady who had been diagnosed with cancer. She had three daughters. They were the same age as our three daughters. And she fought that cancer, and we fought that cancer with her. We as a church family prayed passionately and supported that family. We did everything in the world we could do. I just knew God was going to respond positively to our passionate pleas and all that we had done to save her. How could He possibly let her go with those three young girls there who were hers? on a Friday night in the middle of December in the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland Ohio God let her die I couldn't believe it that was Friday night I remember driving up there up I 77 going to Cleveland that night before she died because I'd gone over to the house and got her husband because we did not expect that turn so quickly. So here I am Sunday morning at church. I'm sitting right there. We had a guest song leader that particular morning because he was a shepherd in the Lord's church back a few years ago and he knew this family and he drove up from the Carolinas to be with the family too up at the Cleveland Clinic. And he was the guest song leader and he got up and he announced the song And I remember sitting there and I turned to the song and my feeler screamed inside of me, I do not want to sing that song. It was that song that says great things he had done. And all I was feeling was, God, you didn't do such a great thing at the Cleveland Clinic Friday night. Now, you might quickly judge me and suggest that. Boy, what a pitiful excuse for a preacher. You must have been in your 30s. There was something about that particular incident and that particular phase of my life. I was extremely vulnerable. And when that happened, I didn't feel like praising the Lord. It's the only time in my life I can honestly say the only time in my life when I was mad at God and I couldn't believe he wouldn't save her. Could he have? Oh, yeah. You know, it took me a long time after that to figure out, well, duh. While she was in the state that she was in, unable to communicate with us, She may have been desperately praying to God to take her home. While we were praying for God to save her. God can't keep everybody happy. That's not His purpose for Him or us. You know what pulled me out of that deep, dark hole? His brothers and sisters in the Lord that morning who sang that song. It took a couple of verses of hearing them sing that song before I could internalize that perspective and sing with them in the last verse. Even though I didn't understand, yes, great things he has done. He provided a way for her to escape that horrific experience by taking her home. I share that transparent anecdote to encourage you to be patient with yourself and with others, because sometimes the experiences in our life can really impact us in unimaginable ways, ways that we never expected can shake us to the core of our being. We need to be patient with ourselves and patient with others when we become a person we're not familiar with or react in ways we never thought we would. I close with this observation from the pen of Bruce McClarty. All of us face something that could cause us to believe that God has turned his back on us, that we could not possibly be used for his glory. Some may say, but I'm divorced. I struggle in my marriage. I have problems with my children. I am ill. I'm too old. I'm too young. Brother Bruce says, Jesus walks into our world and says, in essence, I will not tell you why you face the difficulties you are now facing, but I will tell you this. The work of God can be accomplished in your life, in spite of your problems, perhaps because of your problems. Sometimes the problems that we encounter in life help us to grow in ways we would have never grown otherwise and better equipped us to glorify God by serving others because of the painful, ugly experiences we've had in our life. When we leave this building this morning, no matter what you're going through in your life, use what you've experienced for the glory of God no matter how painful or ugly or difficult it may have been for the glory of God. Keep serving him, worshiping him and helping others. Thank you very much for your attention this morning.